Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jeremy Kress, Assistant Professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. We'll be discussing his article, Who's Looking Out for the Banks?, which is forthcoming in the University of Colorado Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jeremy, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Jeremy, our listeners are all familiar with what a bank is. As a retail customer of a bank, we either walk into a branch or log on online or maybe call a phone number. But your article is focused on the relationship of banks and bank holding companies. And I wondered if you could begin our conversation by just introducing that relationship to the listeners. What is a bank holding company? And how does the overall relationship of a bank relate to the relationship of other subsidiaries of a bank holding company, like an insurance company or broker dealer? Is there any kind of regulatory background that we should be familiar with during this conversation? All of the United States' largest financial conglomerates, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, they're all bank holding companies. That is, each conglomerate is comprised of an umbrella parent company that owns at least one bank subsidiary, that is an insured depository institution that takes deposits and makes loans, and also a bunch of other non-bank subsidiaries, like you said. It uh, could be insurance companies or broker-dealers or other non-bank financial companies. So how did we get here? What's the regulatory background? Historically, the United States had very strict limits on the activities in which banks could engage and what types of companies that banks could affiliate with. During the Great Depression back in the 1930s, Congress passed the Glass-Steagall Act, which prohibited banks from affiliating with In other words, being owned by a company that also owned an investment bank. And there were similar laws that prohibited banks from affiliating with insurance companies. Over the ensuing decades, though, policymakers gradually eroded those affiliation restrictions. And finally, in 1999, Congress passed the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall's structural separations. Gramm-Leach-Bliley authorized banks to affiliate with non-bank financial companies like broker-dealers and insurance companies. So Graham Leach Bliley in 99 really paved the way for the creation of the diversified financial conglomerates like JP Morgan and Citi that we see today. Very quickly after Graham Leach Bliley, these firms went out and expanded into non-traditional business lines. Many of them did via merger. So you may recall the merger of Citibank with Travelers Insurance Company, Chase Bank with JP Morgan, the investment bank. So we had these high-profile cross-sectoral mergers in which diversified bank holding companies became the parent firm for a bunch of different financial entities. The 2008 crisis expedited this transition. We had a bunch of emergency mergers like JP Morgan acquiring Bear Stearns, historically an investment bank, Bank of America acquiring Merrill Lynch, also an investment bank that contributed to even greater cross-sector consolidation. And so that means that today, All of our biggest bank holding companies, JP Morgan, with more than $3 trillion in assets, 
Bank of America, Citi, they're not necessarily all that banking focused. Citi, JP Morgan, Bank of America today all have about a quarter to one third of their assets in non-banking entities. We think of corporate conglomerates as bringing perhaps very different companies under the same umbrella. So for example, if Amazon wanted to acquire a cruise ship company, or if Apple wanted to purchase an automaker, we might question whether that made business sense, but there would be no legal barrier per se to prevent that sort of conglomeration from happening. I get a sense from your opening comments that it's different for banks, that there are greater restrictions historically on who can acquire or own a bank. Is there something special about banks? Is there something special about the governance of banks as compared to any other company that might be important in our society? Absolutely. You said the key phrase, Andrew. It is axiomatic that banks are special. And we as scholars and policymakers have traditionally understood that banks are special for at least a couple of reasons. First, banks perform functions that are essential to the financial system and to the broader economy. Banks safeguard customer deposits. They lend that money out to households and and businesses. In addition, banks are the channel through which most companies and households access the payment system to send and receive money. And critically, banks are the transmission belt for monetary policy through which central banks adjust the money supply and thereby influence macroeconomic conditions. Banks are special because of their functions, and they're also special for a second reason. Banks are special because their business model creates distinctive risks. Banks experience maturity mismatch. That is, they borrow short to lend long. They're funded by short-term liquid liabilities, and they invest in long-term illiquid assets like loans. That means that they're vulnerable to runs by depositors and other short-term creditors. And given the intense interconnections that we see in the financial system, those risks, that funding risk, can quickly lead to negative externalities and knock-on effects in terms of contagion throughout the financial system if a bank were to experience So banks are special because they do special things. Banks are special because they experience special risks. And because of bank specialness, the government grants them several subsidies. The government subsidizes banks both to help them perform their special functions and to insulate banks from those unique risks. These subsidies taken together, I I think of them as the federal safety net for banks. Some of these federal safety net policies are explicit. So you are likely familiar with federal deposit insurance run by uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The FDIC insures customer bank accounts to alleviate the incentives for depositors to withdraw their money in a panic. And that provides a subsidy to banks because customers are therefore willing to leave their money at banks for very cheap rates. You are probably earning 0% interest or effectively 0% interest from your bank right now. And you're willing to do that because it's risk-free since the government insures your deposits. So that access to cheap funding is a very valuable subsidy for banks. In addition, the Fed's discount window allows banks to borrow directly from the Fed when they need liquidity. In addition, as Professor Kate Judge has written, the government-sponsored federal home loan banks provide a valuable safety net to their member banks in the form of subsidized advances and dividends. 
So there are several explicit subsidies that the government provides to banks. And then there is at least one very significant implicit subsidy for at least some banks. Traditionally, market participants have perceived very large banks as too big to fail. This is the idea that some banks are so large and so important to the financial system that if they got into trouble, the government would bail them out rather than allow them to go through a a disorderly collapse. This implicit belief that some banks are too big to fail, in effect, operates as a subsidy to those banks because their creditors are willing to lend to them at artificially low rates since the creditors believe that the borrower, the bank, will never be allowed to go into bankruptcy. Too big to fail perception operates as an implicit subsidy. Policymakers tried to take several steps after the 2008 crisis to reduce the too big to fail subsidy. Those efforts weren't entirely successful. And in fact, we saw during the COVID crisis last March and April, creditors do still perceive some banks as too big to fail and provide them with artificially cheap funding because of this implicit government backing. But Andrew, to go back to your original question, banks are special because they do special things, they experience special risks, and as a result, they get all sorts of these special subsidies from the government that non-financial companies don't get, and even other financial non-bank companies also don't get. These subsidies are unique to depository institutions. I'd like to turn to your title, who's looking out for the banks? Are the banks vulnerable? Are they at risk? Who do they need looking out from, perhaps? What issue do you identify in the article? The issue that I identify is both a corporate governance and a safety and soundness issue. Rather, it's a a corporate governance issue that could lead to a safety and soundness issue. Because of this federal safety net that I just identified, when a bank operates as part of a diversified financial conglomerate, right? When a bank is owned by a bank holding company that does a bunch of other things like insurance and investment banking, that conglomerate, that bank holding company and its non-bank subsidiaries have an incentive to take advantage of the bank and exploit the bank's subsidized funding. The insurance company and the broker-dealer subsidiary of that conglomerate would love to take advantage of the very cheap funding that the bank gets to enjoy as a result of the federal safety net. Non-bank affiliates can take advantage of their bank in several ways. Right, One straightforward way a bank's affiliate might take advantage of the federal safety net is by obtaining a cheap loan from the depository institution. If Citibank makes a below-market rate loan to Citi's investment bank, that can help the investment bank improve its returns. And in fact, this happened in 2008 when Citibank and Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase Bank helped boost their broker-dealer affiliates by lending them billions of dollars. So that's one way that non-bank affiliates can take advantage of their banks. Conglomerates can also exploit the federal safety net by transferring low-quality assets to their banks. Again, we saw this in 2008 when Citigroup transferred the vast majority of its subprime mortgage assets into Citi in the lead up to the crisis. And also in 2008, when banks purchased asset-backed commercial paper from their affiliated money market mutual funds during the peak of the 2008 crisis. Moving bad assets into the bank offloads some of that risk to the deposit insurance fund rather than leaving it in the broker-dealer, which isn't backed by the FDIC. 
A third way in which a financial conglomerate can exploit the federal safety net is by causing its depository institution to declare dividends to the parent holding company and then redistributing those funds to non-bank subsidiaries. And in fact, uh, as I said in the paper, FDIC researchers have found empirical evidence that bank holding companies do in fact take advantage of their depository institutions in this way by causing to declare dividends and then using those funds to redistribute and support their non-bank subsidiaries. Bunch of ways in which non-bank affiliates might take advantage of their bank affiliates. They certainly have incentive to, to take advantage of the federal safety net. And there are several avenues that I just pointed out through which they might be able to do this. Why do we care about whether bank holding companies exploit their bank subsidiaries? You should care for several reasons. When a bank transfers its federal safety net to a non-bank affiliate, that extends the scope of government subsidy, could put the deposit insurance fund at risk. Right, The deposit insurance fund is supposed to guarantee insured deposits. It is not supposed to be used to benefit insurance companies or broker dealers. Access to abnormally cheap funding could encourage insurance companies or broker dealers to take excessive risks. In addition, and I think this is critical, expanding the federal safety net to the non-bank subsidiaries of bank holding companies distorts competition with other insurance companies and investment banks that aren't part of a bank holding company. You've got insurance companies and investment banks that are standalone. They don't have a bank affiliate, therefore don't have access to this special federal safety net subsidized funding. That's bad for competition because it gives bank holding company subsidiaries an unfair leg up. And finally, let me just reemphasize the point that if a bank were to make unsound loans to its non-bank affiliates to artificially prop them up, that could impair the bank's financial condition, not only threatening its depositors, but also putting the deposit insurance fund at risk. Major risks, I think, of uh, bank holding companies exploiting or taking advantage of their bank subsidiaries. Policymakers, to their credit, have recognized this risk, the risk of bank holding companies exploiting their banks. So they put in place several rules designed to shield a bank from exploitation by its affiliates. Most notably, we've got Sections 23A and 23B of the Federal Reserve Act, which impose quantitative and qualitative limits on a bank's transactions with its affiliates. But as I explained in the paper, those rules, 23A and 23B, are pretty hard for supervisors to supervise and enforce. It's not clear that those rules are being enforced appropriately, especially as they relate to derivatives transactions between banks and their affiliates. So we can't rely on 23A and 23B exclusively to police relationships between banks and their affiliates. So as a first line of defense against these risks, against the risk of a holding company exploiting its bank subsidiary, policymakers don't rely just on 23A and 23B. Instead, policymakers instruct a bank's board of directors to shield the bank from exploitation by the holding company and by affiliates. So for example, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the primary regulator for large national banks like Citibank and JP Morgan Chase Bank, the OCC tells bank directors in their bank director handbook that bank directors are supposed to, quote, ensure that relationships between the bank and its affiliates do not pose safety and soundness issues for the bank. 
The OCC handbook further goes on to say that the bank board should, quote, ensure the interests of the bank are not subordinate to the interests of the parent holding company. If the bank's board is concerned that the holding company is engaged in practices that could harm the bank, then the OCC tells bank directors to, quote, dissent on the record and hire independent legal counsel. The Federal Reserve even goes so far as to require the bank's board of directors to review and approve certain transactions between the bank and its affiliates. So I say all that to say that U.S. banking law presumes that bank directors will zealously safeguard the bank vis-a-vis its holding company. Here's the point, right? Here's the crux of my article. This expectation that a bank's directors will shield the bank from exploitation by its affiliates ignores a really important conflict of interest. When a bank's directors also sit on the board of the bank's holding company, the directors have an incentive to allow the holding company and its non-bank subsidiaries to take advantage of the bank and thereby benefit from the federal safety net subsidies. Since bank holding company directors are accountable to shareholders for maximizing the value of the financial conglomerate as a whole, not just the bank subsidiary, those holding company directors may want the bank to engage in preferential loans or asset transfers or other intra-company transactions that benefit the non-bank affiliates. In addition, worth noting that many bank holding company directors are large shareholders in the bank holding company. So holding company directors might be enriched financially when a bank extends its federal safety net subsidies to its non-bank affiliates, since those board members have a large financial stake. In my article, I contend that when a bank director serves simultaneously on the board of the bank and also on the board of the parent holding company, which I show happens more often than not, that director is ill-suited to protect the bank from exploitation by its affiliates. Those legal safeguards are effectively meaningless because they're undermined by potential conflicts of interest. With these problems identified, are there any empirical findings to give us a sense of the scale of these problems that you offer in the paper? Before I talk through my empirical findings, let me just comment for a moment on data collection. It was surprisingly difficult, way more difficult than I think it should have been for me to obtain data on bank board membership. Who are the people who are sitting on the boards of bank subsidiaries? All the big bank holding companies are, of course, publicly traded, so they have to disclose their holding company board membership. There is no requirement, though, that the bank subsidiaries disclose their board membership. I started, I emailed the investor relations departments for all of the big bank holding companies and asked the investor relations departments to tell me the bank board membership. Only a few complied with my request. The vast majority of the investor relations departments ignored me. Some, I'm looking at you, PNC and Discover, told me that they don't publicly disclose the identities of their bank directors. So after I hit a dead end with the investor relations departments, I filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the federal banking agencies, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, the FDIC. All of them denied my requests. The FDIC and the OCC uh, told me that they don't have this information. They don't have consolidated lists of directors of the largest banks in the country. And the Fed said, we may have it, but even if we have it, it's confidential supervisory information. That's bonkers. 
right? That's crazy. We have a regulatory system that's predicated on the effectiveness of bank directors doing their jobs, but no one knows who these directors are. What I ended up doing was uh, I discovered that some bank board membership information is available in various state and international corporate registries. So I went digging around Australia's, essentially their equivalent of the Secretary of State's offices. I also tracked down some of this information in random securities filings and various enforcement actions. And so eventually I was able to put together a, a near complete data set on the directors, the lead bank subsidiaries of bank holding companies with more than $100 billion in assets and more than 1% of their assets in non-bank entities. That's how I put together my data set. Here's my finding. My data revealed that the vast majority of big bank directors simultaneously serve as directors of their parent holding company. I ended up with 14 banks in my sample. More than half of the banks in the sample do not have a single director who does not also serve on the bank holding company. Of the four biggest banks in the country, JP Morgan, Chase Bank, Citibank, Wells Fargo Bank, and Bank of America, only Citibank has a single director who does not also serve on the parent company's board. And in total, out of the 152 bank directors in my sample, 119, or 78%, simultaneously serve on the board of the, the bank's holding company. This is a big problem. Uh, in my view, uh, because it means that the same directors who are supposed to be protecting depository institutions from exploitation actually have an incentive to allow their bank holding company to take advantage of the bank subsidiary and exploit that federal safety net. Let me quickly give you one recent example. At the onset of the COVID pandemic in March 2020, several bank holding companies got permission from the Federal Reserve to transfer assets from their money market mutual funds and broker-dealer affiliates to their bank subsidiaries. They got exemptions from Section 23 of the Federal Reserve Act. The Bank of New York Mellon was reportedly one of the banks that did that, that bolstered its non-bank affiliates by purchasing assets. Of the 12 individuals who served as directors of the Bank of New York Mellon and oversaw these intercompany transactions, all 12 of them served simultaneously on the board of the bank holding company. So the same exact directors who were supposed to protect the bank and prevent the spread of the federal safety net also had incentives to use the bank to try to stabilize the broader bank holding company. With these issues noted, what recommendations would you offer to address some of these problems? I propose that policymakers should require large banks to appoint at least some directors who are unaffiliated with the holding company or the bank's affiliate. Let me just outline the proposal in a little bit more detail. This proposal would apply to bank holding companies with more than $100 billion in assets, so only at the really big firms. And I would define a director as unaffiliated if he or she is not and has never been an officer, director, or employee of the bank holding company or its non-bank affiliates and isn't a member of the immediate family of an officer, director, or employee of the bank holding company or any of its non-bank affiliates. An unaffiliated director could be an employee of the bank or it could be someone who is 
unaffiliated with the financial conglomerate entirely. And I suggest a sliding scale. So for bank holding companies that have a majority of their assets in non-bank legal entities, think Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which are bank holding companies, but are primarily still investment banks, I would require them to appoint unaffiliated directors to every seat on their bank subsidiary board. Because of their heavy focus on non-bank activities, those conglomerates pose the biggest risk of exploiting the federal safety net. Bank holding companies with lesser but still significant non-bank operations, for example, between 10 and 50% of their assets in non-bank legal entities, this is, for example, JP Morgan and Citi, I would require them to maintain a majority of unaffiliated directors on their bank subsidiary boards. And bank holding companies with less of a focus on non-bank activities, say between 1% and 10% of their activities in non-banks, this would be like PNC and US Bank, they could appoint unaffiliated directors to one-third of the seats on their bank board. And in the interest of efficiency, I would exempt bank holding companies with less than 1% of their assets in non-bank legal entities. Bank holding companies like Capital One, which are almost entirely banking entities, they wouldn't have to comply with this requirement. There's a de minimis risk of spreading the federal safety net. In addition, I would require all covered bank holding companies to appoint unaffiliated directors to be the lead director and chair of the audit committee and risk committee of their bank board, since I think those are the most important positions. They bear a special responsibility for overseeing the bank's risks. Let me note that some foreign countries already have this requirement. They already mandate that banks maintain directors who are unaffiliated with their holding companies. The United Kingdom requires no more than one-third of the members of large bank boards to be employees or directors of any of the bank's non-bank affiliates. And France, likewise, prohibits a large bank from sharing any directors with certain non-bank affiliates. So this requirement would not be out of the ordinary internationally. And there is also precedent for this domestically. Some of your listeners may be familiar with a special type of insured depository institution called an industrial loan company or an ILC. ILCs are controversial going back uh, for a long time. But in earlier this year, the FDIC adopted a new rule governing the ownership of ILCs by non-financial companies. And in that rule, the FDIC said that in order to charter new ILCs, the FDIC must be convinced that at least 50% of the ILC's directors will be unaffiliated with the ILC's parent company. That same logic, I think, could be applied to bank holding companies and their affiliated banks. If the FDIC thinks that this type of rule is necessary for ILCs to prevent their parent companies from exploiting the ILCs, a similar rule would be equally appropriate to prevent bank holding companies from taking advantage of their bank subsidiaries. I recognize that there are some implementation challenges that regulators would have to think through in implementing this rule. For example, how the unaffiliated bank directors would be selected or removed, how the unaffiliated bank directors would be compensated. But I think that those challenges are surmountable for reasons that I discuss in the paper. What takeaways would you like listeners to have from this paper and from the conversation? Big picture, I should mention that I wrote this article for a symposium honoring Professor Art Wilmarth, who, who just retired from GW Law School. 
Art just wrote a book encouraging Congress to reinstate the Glass-Steagall Act. In other words, to go back to the Depression era rule where commercial banks were prohibited from affiliating with investment banks and insurance companies. I think Art's proposal of reinstating Glass-Steagall deserves very serious consideration. If you're concerned, like I am, about financial conglomerates exploiting their bank subsidiaries, then reinstating Glass-Steagall would help alleviate that problem. Reinstating Glass-Steagall, though, would require congressional action. And given our current political environment, it doesn't seem terribly likely, at least not in the near term. What I've tried to do in this piece is propose what I think is a relatively easy to implement corporate governance solution. An unaffiliated director mandate would achieve many of the same objectives of reinstating Glass-Steagall, but it's already squarely within the financial regulators' existing legal authorities. Uh, So I think that the regulators could implement this today. And in the absence of reinstating Glass-Steagall, as long as we continue to allow banks to affiliate with insurance companies and investment banks and other non-banks, then we need some reform like this in order to ensure that bank directors really are looking out for their banks and for the broader federal safety net that we want to keep within the insured depository institution system. Our guest today has been Jeremy Kress, Assistant Professor of Business Law at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. We've discussed his article, Who's Looking Out for the Banks?, which is forthcoming in the University of Colorado Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jeremy, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.